Verse 2 of chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you shall not hear? Or why, or cry out violence and you do not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is concerned about the corruption of his own people. The law is paralyzed. There is violence and strife within the nation. And he asks the question, why aren't you doing anything about the evil in the nation? Ever ask that question yourself? I have. You look around and you're like, why is God not working? What's going on? And God gives him an answer. He says, oh, I'm working. I'm always working. I've been working from the beginning of time and I've never stopped working. It's just not what you think. Look among the nations, verse 5, and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They have all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. They sweep like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And if you know anything about the Chaldeans, they would come in and totally take over a city, destroy it, and then they would pile up their enemies. And so they literally would scoff at any fortress. They had trusted in their own strength. And then Habakkuk asks the second question in verse 12. He basically says, well, wait a second. Why are you going to work like this against your own people? I mean, aren't we better than them? God, in verse 12, he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We, that is the nation, shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Basically, he's saying we're better than them. And this is what you will become, O Lord, you're going to judge us and He says, you make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them, all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices in his glad. Lord, you're allowing the the Chaldeans, the Babylonians to come in and just basically catch us. And therefore he sacrifices his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly mercilessly killing nations forever? I'm 
puzzled, Lord, at the way you're working. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I'll watch and see what happens. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so Habakkuk sees the trouble in the nation, prays to God and says, why aren't you doing anything? God answers and says, I am doing something. I'm actually going to bring the Chaldeans to judge this wicked nation. And they're mightier and, and they're, going to, they're going to do, the, they're a part of my plan. And Habakkuk says, well, wait a second. Why are you doing this and how are you going to do this? I'll just watch and see. And then God gives him his second answer. He said, no, I don't want you to just watch. I want you to write. I want you to wait. And I want you to warn. And that's what God wants from us. God does not want any of us sitting on the sidelines in the game of life. He wants every person every, is a player. They're uniquely gifted by him. And so for Habakkuk, it was to write this prophecy for us, for the nation and for us. And it says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Record now so that somebody may take that message and spread it out. For the still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to an end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Write this message. Wait for it to take place. It will surely come. It will not delay. In God's perfect timing, there is no delay. And so he says, record now what will happen later and so that people will go tell others about me. We've got the written record. Nothing else needs to be written. We just need to go and run with it. Some are called to, to write. There are over 40 authors, authors that wrote the Bible. There are many who write today. Some are called to read what others write, but we're all called to communicate the message clearly and faithfully until it's ultimately fulfilled. And God shows us how we're supposed to wait. Look what he says in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up and it is not upright within him. But the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. There are only two ways to live in life. Faith in self or faith in God. That's it. There are no other ways to live in life. Lots of other religions and lots of other ideas out there. There are only two ways to live life. You'll either trust yourself and all your wisdom, and all you've, what you've figured out, thus you'll be a Buddhist or seek nirvana, and you're trusting that you, you figured it out, or you will trust the recorded revelation of God the Father. The righteous shall live by faith. And that, that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, is used three times in the New Testament. Once, or once to show us how we persevere by grace, but before we can do that, it shows us how we are saved by grace alone. Paul uses it in Romans 1 and Galatians 3, and the author of Hebrews uses it somewhere in his book. And so he says, Habakkuk, I want, I want you to serve me, trust me, and I want you to warn others of what's coming. And in verse 6 through the end of chapter 2, 
are five woes. You'll see that, five woes against evil. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read every single one of them. We will read verses 6 through 8, the first one to get a gist, and then we'll read 9, 12, 15, and 19. Shall I not take, shall not all these things take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And he loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will spoil them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. What is going on in those verses is much like what Paul said in Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, this you will reap. You will reap what you sow. And so for those who are sowing evil in the world, there's a woe to them. And in verse 9, it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. There's nothing wrong with safety. There's nothing wrong with gain. The key word in verse 9 is, Woe to him who gets evil gain. Evil gain. And in verse 12, it says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. There's absolutely nothing wrong with cities. There's nothing wrong with building. The key words there are you build this town with blood and cities with iniquity, violence, and sin. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness like your distant great-great-great-great-grandfather Noah, there's nothing wrong in a sense with what's going on there but getting drunk and then using that drunken stupor to mock people. What's wrong there is perversion. And 19, actually verses 18 and 19, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in its own creation. Trust self or trust God. When he makes his speechless idols, and it says in 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. And so what you see from those five woes is, one, there will be repayment for evil. We can trust God with that. Amen? And two, there's a woe against evil gain, In the third one, there's a woe against violent evil gain. And fourthly, there's a woe against perverted violent evil gain. And the root of all this is idolatry. And we see evil today. We see violence today. We see perversion today. And we can do just what Habakkuk did. Really? That's that's how you're working? You're bringing in an evil, violent, perverted people to judge us? Would, ha- would, he, would Habakkuk believe in this sovereign God? Would Habakkuk believe that God can do this and God is at complete freedom to do whatever he wants? Would Habakkuk believe? Absolutely. Look at chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth, musical term. Habakkuk recognizes 
the sovereignty, mercy, and strength of the Lord. That God is sovereign. And for us to remain strong and disciple for a lifetime, we've got to understand that God is sovereign. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Because you have the power to bring it about. And Habakkuk believed that God is merciful and to remain strong as we disciple for a lifetime, we must request this just like Habakkuk did. In the midst of the years, revive it. And in the midst of years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. You're right, Lord. We have turned away from your word. We have walked away from you as a nation. And there are other evil, perverted, violent nations out there that you may use to judge us. But in that wrath that you so rightly can bring at any time, remember mercy. Request it. And in the midst of years to come, he understood that God is strong. And to remain strong for a lifetime, we must understand who this strong God is. And he gives us in the next verses 3 through 16, just a reflection on the Old Testament of this strong God. And he's so overwhelmed by it that he offers pauses in between where he says, Selah. I need to pause. I need to rest. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. Stop right there. There's enough there that we could preach three or four sermons. The Holy One. His splendor. We saw that in Genesis. That it covers the heavens and the whole earth is full of His praise. We could stop right there and show the blue planet or planet Earth and all those DVDs and show just week after week the splendor of God's sovereignty. So we do need to pause. And in verse 4, His brightness was like that of the light. Rays flashed from His hand. And there He veiled His power. He just veiled His power. Not His full power. Just a little bit of it. Before He went, pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtain of the land of Midian did tremble. Was not your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers and your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains you saw and ride, the raging waters wept, swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high, the sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows they sped, and at the flash of your glittering spear. He's just recounting the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the taking of the land in Joshua. You marched through the earth in fury. You're thresh, you threshed nations in anger. You went out for a purpose, the salvation of your people. God's wrath is never just willy-nilly. God's wrath never just comes because he's just kind of angry. He's had enough. He, it's always calculated and it's always purposeful. And this may sound paradoxical, but it's always in love. The greatest thing that he ever did for us was send his own son to the cross to absorb the wrath that rightly was coming to us. For the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to neck. Total destruction. One more pause. 
You pierced his own arrows, the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of the surging of mighty waters. That's just how strong he is. If he wanted to, literally, and we believe this here at Eagle Bar, if he wanted to, he could bring to the world to an end right now. As I speak, mountains could crumble, uh, earthquakes could happen, and we can't predict it. But he could. Here's the key of this entire book. God, this nation is wicked. Why aren't you doing something? Well, I'm doing something, just not like you think. Well, why are you going to do it like that? I'm going to wait. No, no, no. I want you to write and then wait and then warn. And then he reflects on his strong God. He reflects on his merciful God. And here is the key of this entire book. It's a crescendo. Literally, it begins according to the Shigianoth, and it's the crescendo of his musical prayer. Habakkuk will find joy in his strong God as he waits for him to work. Habakkuk will find joy in God as he waits for him to work. This has always been the secret of believers. You've probably heard a couple years ago this book out called The Secret. If you got this secret, everything was going to work out for you. It's just another self-help book on selfishness. Well, there is a secret. And the secret is our strength and our trust and our, here's Habakkuk's key, in God. David said it like this, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Nehemiah said when they had started rereading the law, he said, Go your way, eat, drink, sweet wine, send portions to anyone who is who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that is what Habakkuk does here. He listens to what God says. And in verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You're absolutely holy and righteous. And he says, yet I will patiently or quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk waits. He waits patiently or quietly. The idea is one of rest in the midst of knowing what God can do. He said, I'm going to rest because the righteous shall live by faith. And he doesn't wait passively, does he? We're reading his work. He wrote. He recorded it for us. He waits and he rejoices. Look at what he rejoices in. Verse 17. Catch this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. 
though. Look at the next word. Yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. Not our circumstances. Not our position in life. God. The longing to be happy is a universal human experience. It is good. We should never try to resist the longing to be happy as though it were bad. Instead, we should intensify this longing and nourish it. And here's the key to a book called Desiring God. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. And this happiness, we find God. It reaches this consummation as we share it with others in the manifold ways of love. And to the extent that we try to abandon our own pleasure, or to abandon this and seek our own pleasure, we fail to honor God. As the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and let's change it by enjoying him forever. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Did Habakkuk believe? You bet he believed. He believed in God to show mercy and he overflowed with joy. Habakkuk rejoices in times of trouble because his joy is not found in his circumstances. And if we're going to disciple for a lifetime, our joy must rest solely in the Lord. Paul helps us with this in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Because Habakkuk says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's anticipating this God who would come, who would save. And Paul says, he's already come. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord, there it is, greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity I was so happy in God, Philippians, really happy, because you wanted to support me, but you had no opportunity, and now you have had opportunity, and you sent support to me, and so I'm extremely happy in the Lord. And look what he says in 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. For those of us that went to school, and had to work a little bit in school to, you know, low is like ramen, right? Ramen. I know how to eat ramen. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know what it's like to have a sizzling steak. I know what it's like to come to Eagle, to come to a house that we didn't know anything about to walk into a refrigerator and to open up and see loads of beef. Praise God for whoever did it. I'm thanking you now publicly. That's abounding. Low or high. I have need of nothing. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the verse in context. I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, and for us we know the full manifestation of that is Jesus. To wait patiently and quietly, we must be content. Content with what God has given us. See the, see the focus there? It's not what content with what I have. Love that. Take myself out of the equation. Content with what God has given. And we must be joyful when life is up, stake, and one must be joyful when life is down. Ramen. Here's the problem. Most of us have been taught to think when we're up, God's really at work. God's working now. And when it's down, well, I don't know. There's something wrong. We're more health and wealth than we want to believe. We want to read First Corinthians or First Kings 15 and when... Elijah is there and he calls fire. He prays to God and God sends fire down on the prophets of Baal. We're ecstatic. Yes, God is at work. But we don't go on and read 1 Kings 19. He's running from Jezebel. He's in a cave. And a storm comes. God wasn't in the storm. And lightning comes. God wasn't in the lightning. And there's a still small voice. It's quiet. Not a whole lot of action. God's still working. And he's rebuked. Elijah, who saw God work spectacular, is rebuked. Saying, you're not the only one left. There are 7,000 that remain who have not bowed their knee to Baal. It's very modern thinking. If, if things are going great, God's blessing me. If they're not, I must be doing something wrong or God's really not at work. We've been groomed for this. This is the culture we live in. Listen to commercials. The latest one that's out is uh, Best Buy, where everybody's got their little at a little phone and then the newest one comes out and they bought this TV and then another TV comes out. And everybody's like, oh, we're, we're groomed for something greater, for something better, for something more epic than last year. We live in a country of marketing superlatives. This is the next best thing. We use language like this is unbelievable. If you've been around me for any time, you've probably heard me use, I mean, this is unbelievable. Really? Just unbelievable? You man of superlatives. Tragedy struck one of my favorite churches this week. I won't go into detail, but it's, I got it through an email and I was sharing it with a friend. I said, this is the most disturbing email. <laughs> and I had to catch myself. Really, this is the most disturbing email? No, this is just another email. And it's a fallen world we live in, but I've been groomed in my own heart to speak epic, to speak greater than, better than. I mean, the clothes I wore five years ago aren't as cool as they are now, so I've got to go get something better. And as soon as I buy those, because I'm behind the times, then something else is better. Just read in a magazine yesterday, just trying to see what's what people are talking about. Sorry, fellas, long board shorts for the pool, they're out. That's what they're saying. So if you went out and bought long board shorts, got to get something better, something over the top. 
And as Paul said, the only way to find joy in the Lord is to know Jesus. Earlier in that book, if anyone else has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Now let's go back to Habakkuk. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes me like the deers. He makes me tread in high places. There's a video, Chris Tomlin's song, and you see this mountain goat and it pans out and he's on the top of this mountain. And you're like, how did he get up there and how he's going to get down? He doesn't know, but God's taking care of him. And that's what he's saying here. God is our strength, not not our circumstances, not our achievements, not our performance. No. Something I've been continually learning and relearning, I'll just read you this. In my current ministry role is the need for the gospel to be my emotional buoyancy amidst the ups and downs of ministry. My mood can sometimes be more determined by meetings and programs and how they went than by Christ and his unending love for me. Attendance is up, Judd's happy. Attendance is down, Judd's not happy. Relationships all intact. Judge is ecstatic. God is doing great things. Relationships not doing so good. Must not be called to the ministry. Better quit. Need to go. It's the fruit of justification by works. It's not in your performance. It's not in your achievement. It's not in my wife, as wonderful as she is. Not in my children, as charming as they are. And it's not in this church, though it is a privilege and an honor to serve you. And the more that I've been here, it's been a fun time. But it's not in you. It's not in the home I live in, the car I drive, the PDA device that I carry. It's not even... Here's insight into a pastor's heart. It's not even in my quiet times. Because I can approach this pretty rigidly. And here's what's interesting. I read this this week by Tim Challies. This came out this week. There's the movement of 518, four days ago, three days ago, called Date Nights and Devotions. He talks about his date night with his wife. Hopefully you're not dating your wife like this. This was the greatest date ever. Hear that language? I just threw that in. 
This worked well for us, and I think we're good at dating. We both know the main point of spending time together is to return home with a lot of new knowledge about one another. So we head to our favorite restaurants, put a sandwich, order an order of four cheese spinach dip, and we just sit and talk. And we head home, and we know we've had a good date when we've learned things about one another that we didn't know before. And if we hadn't learned anything new, we know that our date hasn't been so good, and we swear that we'll do better next time. Because that's the point of dating, the accumulation of knowledge about the person you love. And this is what he says, I'm lying. Because that's not the point of dating, right? When you guys go there, you're you're not like... Carolyn, what's your favorite color? And, uh, what, you know, that's not what it is. You're enjoying time with her. But we can approach our life, we can approach our life with Jesus into, today I'm going to read from this chapter and then this chapter, and I'm going to master this. At least some of us struggle with that. So thank you for smiling. I'm not the only one in the room. Instead of just enjoying time with God. Now, I'm not saying punt every plan you've ever had. I'm just saying approach. Why are you reading the Bible? If you're reading the Bible, you should be reading the Bible, but your motive shouldn't be this accomplishment. It should just be, I'm just going to spend time with God. It's freeing. You just camp on three verses. Though. Remember that preposition, though. Remember this, um, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be in the vines. And that whole idea, whatever your circumstances are, they may not be good, though. And then this conjunction, right? Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. See, it's not in the gifts of the giver, but the giver himself Habakkuk wakes quietly and joyfully, and he waits musically. Look at the very last phrase of this book. People overlook this, but it's there for a reason. To the choir master. To the choir master with stringed instruments. We're supposed to sing. It's one of the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit. To the choir master. It's not just a nice way to end your book. There's a purpose for that. God, what are you doing? The nation is wicked. You must not be at work. Oh, I'm at work, just not like you think. Well, why are you working like that? I mean, it's not quite how I would have it work. Write, wait, and warn. What does he do? He writes, he waits, he warns, and he sings. Just remember this in your own life. Video began with if only. I'll throw my own in there. Though yet too. Though life not may not be going the way you want it. Times are tough. Uh, relationships are tough. Children are joy but can be tough. They can. 
I mean, you get to a point, I was talking last week, you get to a point, you're thinking, we're kind of hit that, we got over the top, and then it, what, we thought we were past that. We're backwards. It's okay. Though, your circumstances may not be perfect, yet, are we rejoicing in the Lord alone? Because if we rejoice in any other thing, Habakkuk calls that a stone. It's an idol. It's worthless. Rejoice in the Lord alone. And then he says, two. To express that, we should sing. So, if you'll stand with me, I will pray. We will sing. And then those men who are helping with communion, if they would come. Father, it is a privilege and an honor to call you Father. And as some of us have learned this week, we can call you Daddy. You just want us to climb into your arms and to enjoy your presence. And you send us into a world that does not like you, does not acknowledge you, pray that when we would go so that when we would disciple for a lifetime, we would understand you are sovereign. You will judge. You will show mercy. And that our joy would be found in you alone. Whether you give us great things or you take things away from us, we will bless your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.